I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Silence fills space with different resonances. As you know, if you've made a radio programme and have been asked to keep quiet for a few minutes after the interview so that the ambient stillness can be recorded... It is called Atmos in the trade. Atmos has various timbers and strangely carries mood and meaning. There are silences induced by fear, silences that exude menace, and silences that are peaceful, friendly. When giving a lecture, these differences are material. At the start of my teaching, when I first suggested an exercise to a room full of creative writing students, something on the lines of, We've been reading Elizabeth Bowen. Now think of a house where you were once happy, but you no longer live there. Write it. And they all bent their heads down over their paper and began writing. I couldn't believe it. When students are tackling such a task, the ensuing silence has a particular character. You can feel the whir and hum of thought as if they were a chamber orchestra tuning up. That sustained quiet is a real pleasure. It feels woven of reciprocity, willing, ambition, the impulse towards translating fugitive thoughts into communication with others. It can happen with an audience at a concert, with readers in a library, and with visitors looking at pictures in a gallery. In the recent long, overlong documentary about the National Gallery by the austere filmmaker Fred Wiseman, the camera watched as people looked at the paintings on the walls, a mysterious communion. One especially eloquent sequence showed a session for the blind, the visually impaired, seeing feelingly. But you can't tell what these spectators are feeling or thinking, but that they are tending, that they lost to themselves in that act of looking with their eyes or with their fingers, and that this was something that did not cause pain or anxiety, but something that is the contrary of discontent was undeniable. This scene of interaction as one living, unique mind contemplates and responds to an artifact from the past bears out something a famous thinker said recently when asked to define well-being. Well-being is the sense that whatever it is you are doing satisfies your inner needs, he began. A well-run society, he went on, will provide for its members' fundamental animal needs, but then it will provide the opportunity for people to discover what their inner nature is to create their own future and pursue it to a degree that is maximal. He was then asked, how did he reconcile his highly specialised and technical research with his lifelong activism out there in the world? He was quiet, giving every indication that he was thinking carefully as if he'd never been asked this before. After a beat, he replied, that in the early period of the Enlightenment, the idea emerged that our human species was defined by our creative capacity, that this was most identified by our ability to express our thoughts in language, and that this capacity of ours 
was unique in the natural world. Descartes, he added, was responsible for this idea, the cogito, though he did not like Descartes' views in other respects. The next generation of thinkers, he went on, were the philosophes of the Enlightenment, and they built a vision of society on this foundation. Any system that did not allow human beings to develop our unique capacity to think and articulate would be deemed unjust. An authority that does so should be considered illegitimate. Measures that inhibit, impair, or suppress it are not to be supported by political or social institutions. These principles struck me as luminous, luminous humanist pedagogy. And I didn't want to give you the speaker's name because I didn't want to predispose your response. Some of you may have heard him speak too. Noam Chomsky was already erratic when I went to university from 1964 to 67, in a different era when very few of us, around 5% of the population, had the chance. At the time, I wrote a piece warning myself to remember the reality of Oxford and not to look back in rosy nostalgia. Yet we were undoubtedly a lucky generation. Now, quite rightly, many, many more of us, young and older, are studying for degrees, around 35 to 40%. I believe wholly in this social change. I believe education at every age and level is an unqualified good, unassailably beneficial to the individual and to society and the world. I believe it is as important an indicator of a society's thriving as nutrition and housing. I entered full employment as an academic late in life. So what have I learned since I began teaching at the University of Essex over 10 years ago? Something has gone wrong with the Atmos, with the way the universities are being run. The new brutalism, digital managerialism, has become the favorite play script that the executive powers follow as they seize authority over academics and like the Red Queen shouting for blood, issue hasty, capricious, ill-thought-out and contradictory orders. Above all, I have learned, not everything that is valuable can be measured. I was forced out of my professorship at Essex after I was told first that I couldn't retire because I was needed, and secondly, that I should take on chairing the Man Booker International Prize 2015, and finally congratulated on the fellowship at All Souls, non-stipendiary but a chance to do some research, only to be subsequently informed that the policy had now changed and I was to teach full-time weekly. There was more to what happened, and I'm not going to rehearse the details, but in sum, I lost my post and my income, though Birkbeck have kindly taken me on on a fractional contract. After I wrote the diary piece, which Nikki kindly referred to, letters and emails poured into me and to the magazine. The correspondence reveals a deeper and more bitter scene in higher education than I had ever imagined. I had been naive culpably unobservant in my attitude to the world of teaching, as I realized after students, lecturers, professors at different stages of their careers from one institution after another began writing to me with their stories. All who wrote to me cried out in sympathy and rage. Not one of them dissented or tried to justify the situation. I had thought at the time that Essex was a monstrous manifestation, but it turns out that its rulers' ideas are the new normal as the Chinese government calls their present economic plan. This new normal could not present a more violent contrast to that scene of absorbed study, of striving and expression that can develop in a classroom among students, who are not all going to be scholars or poets or teachers, 
but part of the whole society where we are now, alongside one another, our kin, our kind, making the complicated fabric that is the ethos of an epoch and place. I began reading. Over ten years ago, far-sighted, cogent critics, Ian Pearce, Stefan Collini, were already aware of the danger to the universities. It sounds melodramatic, but I would wake up from a nightmare. I'd been wading through frozen sewage, where friends and colleagues were howling and grinding their teeth, while smiling vice-chancellors and deans, executive deans, looked on in satisfaction. (laughs) Dante has never seemed so contemporary. (laughs) Cries of pain also reached me from countries beyond our borders, where the methods originated, from New Zealand and Australia, the Netherlands, and from certain institutions in the US, where much of the current mindset was forged. But I'm not a historian working in this field, and I have found myself an unexpected witness. So on the screen, you have an account from a professor who resigned from a Russell Group University. Um, And she says the department was freighted to breaking point. You've probably read it by now. Um, The incessant emphasis was on cash. Um, uh, Sorry, uh, anyone for study who could pay. It was like working for a cross between IBM and vertiginous, with vertiginous hierarchies of command, and McDonald's. Among other tales of woe that poured into my inbox, some wrote to say how once they had, contrib- how once they had contributed significantly to the, ref- to the research scores of the REF and to the impact reckonings, their posts were to be terminated. Their usefulness was over. 2020, the probable date of the next round, is still a long way off, and new plans could be made shortly before it. Some had obtained large grants, but found themselves pushed out when that period ended. Others have agreed to contracts that bind them to obtain X amount of grant money if they were to stay in post or look forward to any kind of promotion. Others had been told to change their research topic to a subject that lay outside their expertise entirely. For example, a poet was ordered to start archiving the papers of a local broadcaster which his university has acquired. Many described how contracts agreed in the past are now tossed aside. Two colleagues of mine litigated at their own personal cost and one against the university. (coughs) University authorities impose these conditions as a consequence of changing economics, the changing economics of educational state policy. Cuts are the tools of the ideological decision to stop subsidising tuition and to start withdrawing from directly supporting research. In effect, we are living through a move towards privatising higher education. The cuts have not led to famine. The figures we have are not completely up to date, but student numbers have grown by as much as 40% in some places and even more in others, with consequent spikes in those institutions' incomes. This growth is unexpected, but the trend seems set to go on for the young, while older people, especially part-time students, are hard hit. Meanwhile, the student debt is standing at something crazy. Since 1990, when the loans began, it has risen to 54.36 billion, and at the current rate will increase by 5 billion a year. This phantasmic supply of money is giving every sign that a colossal subprime mortgage explosion will follow. Austerity has become an almighty pestle for grinding down most of the people who provide the raison d'etre of the universities in the first place. The present teachers and researchers, as well as future teachers and scholars. The situation reminds me of the early chapters of H.G. Wells' autobiographical novel, Kipps, 
inspired by his experience of indentured labor at a draper's. In these conditions, many university staff, like Kipps, are looking for work elsewhere. We are not replacing teachers in the numbers we need to keep, to keep pace with these mounting crowds of students because investment is being diverted. A very different kind of silence holds in its grip many people, the many people who wrote to me in response to my piece. With only two exceptions, every one of my correspondents swore me to silence on their names. Some used private email accounts and begged me to use that address only and conveyed sincere terror that their complaints might come to light and they might be punished. The term used is disciplined. Gagging orders enforce the silence. One of the casualties has shown me the relevant clause, setting out the conditions of her financial settlement. Her agreement is one of 5,528 recorded cases of agreed non-disclosure over three years before 210, which are the most recent figures available, and since then they will have risen. The cost was standing then at 4.4 million in payouts to staff and 7.1 million in legal costs for the universities. Why? Why throw good money after this in a time of cuts? Why, with all the endless talk of transparency and accountability, why do the administrators need to enforce silence? It's not actually clear that silence can be legally enforced, however, as the law provides strong protection for individuals against employers' misconduct. But for an individual, fighting against a university through the courts can be ruinously expensive. It is also obvious, for example, that I must honour my correspondent's request for confidentiality, and I have to watch my own words too. When confronted with bitter protests and complaints from inside or from outside, the universities often respond with another kind of silence, the silence of no comment. As Stefan Collini says in his trenchant study, What a University is For?, compelling and often devastating criticisms appear to have little or no effect on policymaking. The arguments have not been answered. They have merely been ignored. Rather than blaming academics for not speaking out sufficiently strongly, the conclusion is that those who make policy are just not listening. This is the dominant tactic, deaf-muteness. One of the students rose up to say in the Times Higher, statements from the university portraying students' education and experience as the university's priority have left me with no choice but to respond with the student's perspective. And she ends, it, it almost feels like a personal vendetta against the humanities. I don't have to tell you that a university is a place where ideas are meant to be freely explored, where independence of thought lies at the heart of its purposes, where inquiring minds are expected to be spurred on to press further with their questions, that in these vaunted sanctums where Western ideals of democratic liberty are enshrined, at the same time as we are busy congratulating ourselves on our freedom of expression, we have a situation in which a lecturer cannot speak her mind, the Times higher can't get a statement on the record, Graduate students can't blog what's happening. One of mine was told to take down the questions she raised on her Facebook. Yet gagging orders are not even always necessary. This kind of silence arises from different causes, from fear, insecurity, precarious social conditions, and shame. It is the shame of the battered wife that keeps her from telling anyone that she didn't fall down the stairs and allows the thug to count on her silence and smile and smile as if nothing has happened. I recognise, for example, the compunction in the words of Rosalind Gill, now a professor at King's, 
in a fine article she wrote, Breaking the Silence, the Hidden Injuries of the Neoliberal University, which is collected in a volume called Secrecy and Silence in the Research Process, Feminist Reflections. She says she nearly didn't write the piece because she felt that pointing to some of the injuries of British academic life had a somewhat obscene quality to it, given our enormous privileges relative to most people in most of the world. She felt ashamed to be complaining about conditions at work because she was in it, quote, for the satisfaction, not the money, for the nourishment of her mind and for others. The administrators administrators count on that in others, not themselves. Rosalind Gill recognises that the very sense of specialness that still hangs around the idea of being a teacher or a professor, especially for women, after our late acceptance into the profession and our erratic and precarious progress within it, has impaired us, or rather it predisposes us to be agreeable. She writes, We therefore need urgently to think about how some of the pleasures of academic work or at least a deep love of the myth for the myth of what we thought being an intellectual would be like, bind us more tightly into a neoliberal regime. In 2011, the American literary scholar Lauren Bolant published an intense and angry analysis of contemporary society called Cruel Optimism. Cruel optimists open themselves to exploitation when their sense of identity and self-worth, which derives from doing something they believe in, for others and for the good of society to which they belong, comes up against a hierarchical authority that is secretive, arbitrary and ruthless. Cruel optimism afflicts the colleague who agrees to yet another change of policy in the hope that this will be the last time. Cruel optimism motivates the colleagues who undertake examining for the ref. It has grown out of the long, deep belief in the value of knowledge and the human capacity to pass it on from one person to another, from one generation to another. When I began to learn my lesson, I was entranced by this vision of the humanities. I took a photograph last September of the pediment of the fin de siècle Teatro Massimo in Palermo, which has recently been reopened. The maximum size there proclaims in that earnest voice, sententious, exhortatory, that one hears all over the European republics, which are proud of their popular unity. Art renews the people and reveals their life. Hollow are the pleasures of the stage when they do not show you the way ahead. Art grows in the mulch of scholarship. Scholarship grows entwined with art. I see the acts of thinking and making, theoria and poesis, enmeshed, rather like one of those great banyans that fan out through a whole forest, but are in essence only one tree, roots and branches ramifying into a various interwoven whole reaching deep down into the aquifers and keeping on spreading out a vast canopy. I thought that for this talk I would create a slim anthology of emancipatory fables, witness statements to education, memoirs of encounters with books, libraries, teachers, and the course of a life changed. The romantic vision of the Ettrick Shepherd still colours my ideals, how James Hogg, an unlettered labourer in the borders, was recognised by Walter Scott, who gave him the run of his library. Albert Camus relates in his posthumously published memoir, Le Premier Homme, The First Man, how his widowed mother and granny took the bus into town for his graduation from the lycée shortly before his departure to Paris. Neither Camus' grandmother nor his mother could read or write. They sat in the hall in Alger in the town, 
as the name of the young man they had brought up was called out again and again. He had come top in Greek, Latin, history, philosophy, whatever. When Camus, the philosopher, the political thinker, the novelist, won the Nobel Prize, he acknowledged his teachers. Without you, without that affectionate hand which you held out to the poor child that I used to be, without your teaching and your example, none of this would have happened. W.E.B. Yeats wrote, as a nation came to intellectual maturity, it realized that the only thing that did it any credit was its intellect. We are all, to my mind, inhabitants of an old culture, of an old city, a Cairo, Baghdad, Beijing, or Rome. And we struggle towards clarity and understanding on strata and strata of predecessors' thought and work. Magna Carta is being celebrated this year, and it's a good instance of what I mean. Stuart Hall, Richard Hoggart, Eric Hobsbawm, who all sadly died recently, define the debates about values directing this country. So do historians, philosophers, and social theorists, as divergent as Roland Williams and Paul Gilroy, Mary Douglas and Mary Beard. We could speak of many others too, from other parts of this cultural scene. Roger Scruton, Will Self, Melanie Phillips. But they, we, all grew in an era of free public higher education, which, with means-tested variations, had been in place since the war and lasted until recently. And it brought about the cultural effervescence that has marked the UK and made it such a magnet for intellectual and creative individuals. Julie Waters, who made her name in educating Rita, Willie Russell's play about the very experience of getting a university degree, sparked controversy recently when she said that the chances her generation had enjoyed were at an end. J.K. Rowling's degree in classics from Exeter shows in her fantastic inventory of monsters and heroes. Grayson Perry's portrait of the artist as a young girl is dedicated to all those at art school who helped him become who he is now famous, successful artist who, if we are to mention the cultural industries, brings in revenue in taxes, gives employment to people, including dressmakers, and lights us up in more ways than one. Even Irvin Welsh went to university, and however much he plays the bad boy, he told me when I met him that he got a first. He told me that with great defiant pride in politics. Such faith in the value of a humanist education is beginning to look like an antique romance. Yet another reason, however, for my unwavering commitment to this belief is because women fought for the right to learn and to go on to study at universities, and our growing presence in higher education is one of the valuable changes of our time. Florence Nightingale, in a fulminating essay of 1853 called Cassandra, sees with frustration at her fate a young, well-brought-up female expected to sit in the parlour making polite conversation with her parents' visitors while doing her embroidery. When she wanted to be in her room, reading, thinking, learning, she had no outlet, she cried out, for passion, intellect and moral activity. Wolfe read this blast and remember how she railed that her brothers were sent to school and would go on to university. When I arrived at Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, the two Mrs. Denicky were still alive, just, to be glimpsed walking in the college garden, tending the shrubbery. They were sisters who had been among the first women at Oxford. One was a musician, the other a scholar, and they had sat the exams successfully, but degrees for women were not officially conferred, not until 1920 in Oxford and even later in Cambridge. The way these stories are told can strike echoes with abolitionists' pamphlets, 
stories of freedom gained, horizons widened, minds enlarged and nourished, and our societies aglow, even englamoured by this freedom to learn, which, like our code of law, our parliamentary democracy, marked us out as special, but we are being so careless with this. I flattered myself that by teaching I could make a difference, to spark a young mind, to foster an older returning student's aspirations, and act as the catalyst of that self-discovery that Seamus Heaney describes in The Redress of Poetry when he writes, we go to poetry to be forwarded within ourselves. And that literature gives an experience that is like foreknowledge of certain things which we already seem to be remembering. I think we could say we go to education too for these experiences, to be forwarded in ourselves and to recognise things we only glimpsed dimly before. So in spite of the warnings against cruel optimism, I still hold fast to the life of the mind, its beauty, its necessity. I will quote another poet, a friend and my former colleague at Essex, Philip Terry, from a sonnet sequence after Joachim du Bellet, which he's just finished, called The Regrets. Even though labour without profit seems idiotic to accountants, even though decorators won't accept a cheque from a sound poet, even though dedication to the muse is sure to make you skint, yet I am not about to quit, for writing alone eases my troubles. I've been talking so far as if the chief sufferers from cruel optimism are teachers. This is, of course, not the case. The students are above all the victims. The new managers want to pack them in and pile them high and then neglect their interests by maltreating their teachers in all the ways I have described. From a former student about experiences on an MA he took at another place later, what you said in the article really resonated with me. And the way you describe universities adopting a for-profit attitude is 100% what I experienced. The course was not cheap and was also falsely advertised. From a list of 11 modules, only six or seven were running. We also had 35 students on the course, of which 25 were overseas and had paid about £12,000 each. They were very disappointed, as was I. Teaching assistants, mostly graduates, are used to replace our teaching. One tells me that she was paid £380 last term for an undergraduate course of 10 weeks, 20 students in class, 18 hours in all, plus preparing and marking. This amounts to a wage of £38 a week. No wonder academics are demoralised and drifting out of the profession. In answer to an exam question about art and life, a student recently answered that she knew what it was like to be a hobbit because she had read Tolkien. I have never been a Victorian or a boy, but I have a sense of that experience from books. Storky and Co. by Rudyard Kipling fascinated me when I was young, far more than Tom Brown's school days, though both capture the terror of the gang leader and the connivance of followers in his petty yet terrifying despotism. More recently, I read a fine novel by the Korean Yi Munyol called My Twisted Hero, which tracks the turbulent emotions of a young boy in relation to another bigger lad, Sokde, who's cock of the walk in the school, a thieving, lying, cunning brute who manages through the willful blindness and collusion or collusion of teachers to coerce the entire class to do his bidding. But what is subtle and indeed memorable about the novel is that Yimunyol shows how the bully wins the narrator, his victim, over to his side. Quote, 
Now that I had abandoned my belief in the principle of freedom, submission didn't feel like a great price at all. The, the author has his own country, Korea, in mind, but we can see through his school, through his career, to the watermark, the larger patterns of subjugation and dictatorship, obedience and collaboration closer to home. When I finished Lee Mugnol's unsparingly frank novel about bullying, I could see why one administrator wrote in to the LRB to say, anonymously of course, that the new regimes were just as horrible for the administrators. Academics used to run their affairs on a voluntary roster. Perhaps it was our reluctance to take on admin that has punched the hole in the defences and allowed a plague of snakes in suits, as one writer calls institutional bullies, to slither through the breach. Um, This is from another professor in a very historic institution, and she says the main issue is the overall change in management style. Um, Decisions are made and imposed and we must just swallow. With money being tight, it would make sense that the management try to use all the brains available to them to find creative solutions, but instead they keep us out and bark instructions. When I have tried to be heard, I have been yelled at, accused of having old-fashioned measures of success and disciplined. Luckily, I am a tenacious little fucker. Excuse my language. And some deep moral outrage makes me want to fight for what I feel is important to provide. Beating out universities into a business shape suborns language to its ends. Last year, I went to see Orwell's 1984 in the headlong production adapted for the stage, and it was chillingly, brilliantly prophetic. You have all heard that robotic idiom of management statements, as if a button had activated a digitally generated voice. As Orwell shows with Newspeak, Business Speak offers a crucial instance of magical naming. The imagery of the market superimposed on the idea of a university through targets, benchmarks, time charts, league tables, vision statements, clients, content providers. We may laugh or groan, depending on our state of mental health, at the thickets of TLAs, three-letter acronyms, as in the clever coinage of my new colleague, the writer Richard Hamblin. FLAs and SLAs, four-letter, five-letter, six-letter acronyms accumulate like the plaque that ruins our teeth. (laughs) Perversions of thought through such systemic codes and obscurity add to the threatening atmosphere that now pervades academic life. These TLAs, the REF, KPIs, FTEs, FHEFKI, EPSERC, pepper every document circulating in universities, and they are the prime tools of digital managerialism. They swallow up everything and deaden it, as if in the necromantic mirror of the Snow Queen, freezing everything into its its own hard malignancy. The code conceals aggression. Actions are undertaken in its name and justified by its rules. It pushes responsibility from persons to systems. You can program software to sort and grade and crunch TLAs. They shift individuals to the side, replacing them by columns, boxes, numbers, rubrics, and often meaningless tautologies. We have all struggled with forms asking first for aims and then for objectives. (laughs) Humpty Dumpty puts the matter trenchantly when he so famously proclaims, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. You will all remember that when Alice is honestly puzzled by this, Humpty Dumpty retorts, the question is, which is to be master, that's all. The term that is successfully imposed will occupy the field of meaning. Calling the work of writing a book, generating an output, or a university, a knowledge delivery solution. (laughs) 
has that cryokinetic effect. It freezes the infinite possibilities of differences in writings and research and sets them hard in the mould of market ideology, sales items. Last month, Rowan Williams gave a profoundly reflective talk to the members of the Campaign for the Defence of British Universities. He spoke with quiet fury about the barbarity and incoherence of current higher education policy documents. One important way of learning, he said, opens up multiple meanings of the work, be it a text or other artefact, to attend to the symbolically freighted relations of meaning within it. The motive is not to find a solution, but to open the way to further questions. The student emerges with an improved capacity to question. Difficulty is good for us, he said. Good for us to be reminded not to settle for the quick answer. The ticked box, the sat table, close down minds and consequently narrow the world for the individual and for us all in our relations with one another. Williams called this way of learning honestly difficult. But for an example of honestly difficult lessons in saying one thing and meaning another, in the abuses of truth by power, I want to seek out a more cryptic guide than Lewis Carroll and George Orwell. The allegory from the National Gallery, which we glimpsed earlier in the still from Fred Wiseman's film, is a painting of immediately seductive voluptuousness and tantalises thought with its sumptuous mysteries. Historians who wrought a revolution in interpreting the Renaissance worked to enter the mind of such a painter as Bronzino. According to Erwin Panofsky, the young girl looking out at us from behind the gleeful, leaping little boy is fraude, fraud. And she is holding out a honeycomb with one hand and with the other, which she holds behind her back, she is grasping a small, spurred and venomous beast. Her face is sweet, but does not look quite right. It appears unnaturally broad-browed, fixed and expressionless, a bit robotic, especially compared with the lively emotions that play upon the features of the other figures in their twisty knot of passion. Despair, rage, dismay, merriment, tenderness, love. Fraud's true nature is revealed chiefly by her animal rear parts and the muscular reptilian tail that twists down towards the masks uh, lying on the right. But look closely, says Panofsky, and you can see that her hands are the wrong way round. What should be her right hand is her left, and vice versa. Double dealing is embodied here as inversion, Crookedness covered up by blandishments and frank blankness, a form of frozen beauty. Emblem manuals decreed that fraus, fraud, or mendacitas, or mensonia, lying, should be depicted with such signs of double dealing, snakes and masks, etc. And here's another example. I, wonder, I was wondering if I could propose this looked like an administrator, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> Bronzino flesh, fleshes out the handbook's didactic instructions with a degree of psychological intensity and dramatic sensuality that makes this painting memorable and unsettling and illuminating, I think, in pointed ways in this context. First, Erwin Panofsky is one of the several remarkable scholars who lost his job in Germany in the 30s because he was Jewish and found intellectual freedom elsewhere. He went to Princeton, where he revolutionized art history in America. In this country, Edgar Wint helped bring the Warburg Institute to London with immeasurable effects on the intellectual riches of our culture, radiating here likewise as in America through the whole extraordinary post-war success of museums, galleries and art making. 
Meanwhile, Abbe Warburg himself, rather surprisingly, has become the leading magus of many contemporary artists. It so happens that Edward Wint was giving the Slade lectures at Oxford in the Oxford Playhouse during my first year as an undergraduate. His performances at the lectern, from the moment he swirled down the aisle on the stroke of the hour, throughout the whole intoxicating yet controlled cataract of knowledge, delivered in the crunchy gravel consonants of Mita Europa, accompanied by glass slides of Sistine Chapel, etc., turned him into a cult among my contemporaries. As you all know, the Warburg has valiantly fought the University of London's administrative designs on its purposes, and so far, so far, it seems to have succeeded in a magnificent example of coherent resistance. Secondly, the deceptions of Bronzino's honeyed young beauty strike a terrible chord of memory in me. The new masters in our places of learning hold the barbed poison behind their backs, ready to whip it out, while the honeycomb drips with promises of advancement on condition of compliance. The business model for education has turned research into products and through the process of the REF imposes stock-taking. The distortions the REF creates are various, so various that I can't begin to give you a full list. It has failed to give the public a clear account of what academics do and why they do and why what they do is worth supporting. It is also gameable. A Shakespearean scholar has to cut up a planned book into four journal articles to make up the required tally. Some universities actually do better in the league tables because they support fewer people to do research. The data is presented according to so many different axioms that after the REF announced its findings, one university after another claimed to be in the top 10 until as many as 50 had done so. <laughs> Devouring the time of people who could have been teaching, writing and studying, the REF has been quite hallucinatorily wasteful. It has also failed to redistribute research with any significant difference to smaller players outside the privileged Russell Group. Even Sir Roderick Flood, a former vice-chancellor, calls it an expensive charade. At the British Academy, success in the last round of applications for funding, that was ending last 2013-14, fell to 14%, with humanities researchers, 1,648 of them, faring worse than the social sciences, scientists, even though more of them had scored the highest mark. Everywhere, young, young researchers are slicing off their heels and cutting off their toes to fit into the cramped glass shoe of Hefke's research initi- initiatives. Everywhere, Hansel and Gretel have been left in the forest to find the wherewithal to survive. And in this scenario today, they are so desperate, they will fail to make common cause together, but instead turn against each other for that bright plum or berry. Fortunately, there is mounting anger at this situation, and academics are at least banding together now in consortia rather than continue competing to the death. Another lesson I learned, which surprised me, is that with £9,000 a head per student and more from graduates, there is money gushing in. If the students are from abroad, they pay more, often a lot more. Then there are rents, food outlets, parking charges. Where is all this dosh going? How is it being spent? I think you know some of the answer. Universities vary in the way they are responding to government policy, and some are indeed far more considerate to student needs and committed to maintaining standards of teaching and research. But others, by contrast, are fully determined to pursue profit, diversifying through a gamut of joint ventures and commercial enterprises, 
Cranes are soaring over campuses, diggers boring into the mud, glass, steel and other more fanciful materials are rising the length and breadth of England and Wales. These new buildings are housing business of studies, engineering, computing, government studies, botanical and life sciences, and other subjects with evident economic applications. I am no Luddite. I want the country to invest in learning and experiment in the applied sciences. The buildings are sometimes splendid. The world's greatest architects are often working on them and their intended purposes are sometimes admirable. But the balance is becoming seriously skewed against education and research for their own sake and against independent, independent thought, study and innovation. There is a serious danger that, encouraged by official economic ideology, universities are consciously defining themselves as affiliates, even satellites of corporations and government using academics to carry out cut-price research in their interests. One university boasts on its website about its new building for engineering and computing. What this means for industry is that they can access these technologies and facilities at a fraction of the cost of having these facilities themselves. Some of this research is bound by gagging orders, too. In this case, for the purposes of protecting intellectual property. This seems to me a serious breach of the collective interest in research and of our access to knowledge as it grows in our universities. It is also bizarre that under the new open access rules, which decree that all research done on public funds must be freely available online, we are seeing a rise in university researchers bound to secrecy by their funders. But the strongest trend is the drift away from academic activities, from scholarship and from the arts and humanities altogether. It feels in some places as if these heartlands are being allowed to survive on sufferance, dependent on students who, for some reason, obstinately still want to study subjects like English literature and history. These are not expensive for universities to run, especially if the workforce can be degraded by casualization. But they are treated like Cinderella's because they attract less grant money than, say, a chemical, medical or military industrial project. In 2013, the Vice Dean for Research at the Bartlett School of Architecture, part of UCL, resigned because the school was suddenly given millions for a brand new institute of sustainable research by the world's largest mining company. It was difficult for me, she said, to be absolutely sure if the research was actually independent. It may well be independent, but I wasn't able to reassure myself that the governance structures in place protected academic independence. She added, the issue here, she's completely right about this, the issue here is that by getting involved closely with a university, the mining company, Billiton, can then be involved potentially in defining the very term sustainability. This is the key point. In his Wreath Lectures on the Universities in 1963, Albert Sloman made it clear, a professor can speak out on national issues of science and scholarship as a scientist in a government research centre cannot. So universities must go on being places of scholarly investigation. In June 2013, the University of Essex managers scrapped the Institute for Democracy and Conflict Resolution, which Daniel Lieberskind had been commissioned to design three years before. The cost of this change of direction has been thoroughly buried in the accounts, as happens in such matters. The new Business Studies Centre houses, instead, 
houses a big data facility and promises spaces for student entrepreneurs. Most crucially, since 2005, the number of academics at that university rose overall by 27%, while the numbers of senior support staff, that is administrators, has risen by 81%, an imbalance that was palpable on campus when I was there. Yet, for those who are paying 9,000 or more a year in tuition fees, it is the academic side that defines the concept of a place of higher education. The general picture reveals rising numbers of administrators everywhere in response to the policy. Even at UCL, a colossal victor in the Research Olympics, there has been a rise of 36.4 in administrators. And while student numbers are growing very strongly, academics have risen by only a fifth. Universities are not businesses. They are legally charities. But primarily, the closer analogy would be a public coastal path or an urban park. I think a place created for the good of citizens, where their minds are cared for, as their bodies are, by other social measures. The current denaturing of the universities treats them less like a park than a shopping mall. It follows that renaming in 2009, when higher education passed into the control of the Department of Business, Innovations and Skills, which directly oversees the agencies, the managerial oligarchies, who are appointed by the government and are unaccountable to anyone besides government. Micromanaged performance reviews for teachers on short contracts are relentlessly imposed. Yet, by contrast, nothing of the kind takes place for the people in charge, the current board members of HEFKE, who hand out government funding. Um, the current board members do not include a single academic from the humanities who is active in research, let alone teaching. A new nomenclatura has arisen. Vice-chancellors and their ever-proliferating numbers of pro-vice-chancellors and deputy vice-chancellors and the burgeoning number of fundraisers whose fees are not easily discoverable in the accounts. As many of these apparatchiks are paid five or six or even five, four or five or even six times as much as most professors, let alone lecturers and teachers and other staff, these posts exert a powerful pull, especially on those who would not, for example, fulfill the academic criteria they themselves flourish before their underpaid underlings to browbeat them. The eye-popping figures for vice-chancellor vice salaries in 2012 to 13 have been gathered by the Times higher. The average pay then was 232,000 a year. Last year, King's College London defended in court its refusal to divulge the six-figure salaries of its most highly paid staff. Again, confidentiality was being invoked. In whose interests? What would it have revealed? Bad blood among the staff would follow such disclosures, the college's lawyers pleaded. The high salaries are needed because, it is forever argued, making money to pay for education requires business pay scales and an industrial production line. But even if this were the case, and I don't concede that, the current arrangements reveal that education is becoming the mask plastered over another set of activities, and universities are turning into Potemkin villages where students are paying for the privilege of figuring themselves. Isabel Armstrong has remarked that the best way to defend the humanities is to practice them. I would like to follow Italo Calvino, who at the end of his wise and beautiful novel, Invisible Cities, gives Marco Polo a speech that has since become very famous. There are two ways to escape suffering, Inferno. The first is easy for many. Accept the Inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. 
The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of inferno are not inferno. Then make them endure. Give them space. These words have justly been quoted again and again. They communicate Calvino's philosophy, his wise storyteller's counsel, as well as a description of the best function of learning from study and experience. So how do we escape inferno? To whom shall we give space and how? Connectedness through shared culture is one of the ways, and universities build that common ground. In his memoir, Levy also remember, Primo Levi also remembers a friendship he made in the lager with the youngest inmate, Jean, a Frenchman from Alsace who acted as the piccolo, the messenger clerk of Levy's allotted unit, the chemical commando. One day, Jean calls by the underground petrol tank, which the workforce is scraping out, and he picks Primo to go with him on the daily corvée of the ration, a walk of half a mile there and back. The two young men begin talking. Jean expresses interest in learning Italian, and so Primo begins teaching him some words, zuppa, soup, aqua, water. Then all of a sudden, Primo thinks of Dante, the canto of Ulysses. Who knows why or how it comes to my mind? He begins to try to piece it together from memory. It returns in fragments, and as he translates them falteringly, they capture Jean's interest. Ulysses, plunged deep in the eternal fires, speaks lines that amount to a manifesto for human questing. You were not born to live as brutes, but to follow virtue and knowledge. Levy remembers, and I also was hearing it for the first time, like the blast of a trumpet, like the voice of God. For a moment I forget how I am and where I am. Piccolo wants him to repeat it. How good Piccolo is, writes Levy. He is aware that he's doing me good. Or perhaps it's something more. Perhaps he has received the message. He has felt that it, ha- what it, has to do, that it has to do with him, that it has to do with all men who toil, and with us in particular, and that it has to do with us too, who dare to reason of these things with the poles for the soup on our shoulders. In the canto, Ulysses' companions, though they are now vecchi e tardi, old and slow, rise up to follow him, once more onto the unknown open sea, not heading home from Troy on this journey, but setting out to discover a new world. When I first read this chapter, my hair stood on end. These two young men in the abyss rise up through the words of the poem to another zone. They dare to reason of these things. I still feel the power of that dream of rejecting brutishness, of following virtu e conoscenza, not virtue, but virtuality, the full possibility. Being human and here means trying to reason what reality feels like, as a young philosopher said the other day in an interview. A reality which includes other people and our relations to them, living and dead. Levy wanted to communicate Dante to his friend. The scene offered me a quintessence of hope, rising from the things made by imaginations who went before and connecting us, regardless of our bodily mortality, across time and circumstance involving us, teaching us as far as we are able to think ourselves into the state of another. I began with silencing, but now I want to return to that creative capacity of us human beings and our unique capacity to express our thoughts in language. I want to come out of this morass with a sense of giving expression to some light and air. Language is the medium in which the past chiefly still survives to communicate with us, And reading, literature, history, philosophy 
connects us to that living banyan tree of thought and knowledge. Creative writing is a fairly new degree subject, but it's become one of the most popular. This success is a consequence of the market model, since client demand is determining the character and scope of the humanities. But what else does it tell us? A female student I had began laughing nervously once, her hand over her mouth. The exercise I'd suggested had made her think of a story, but she ought not have thought of it, she said, and she was frightened to write it. Ah, I said, fiction gives you permission to do that. It's not you speaking, but someone whose voice you are making up as you write, so you are free, or rather you can be more free there, in that space of the imagination, to think around things, not necessarily giving your feelings or your opinions, but exploring possibilities. She was a young Arab woman, only lightly veiled, and she continued composing her wild allegory about a matriarchy wantonly destroyed by men. Her piece was fluent and heartfelt, heartfelt, and yes, brave. I've still since thought that her response offers a glimpse into a reason for the popularity of creative writing. When students fall into that silence of concentrated thinking, as they bend their heads over their paper and write, they are finding a way of expressing themselves. They are learning to use language, developing articulacy. And with articulacy, they are defining questions, arguments, and values that matter to them. Creative writing teaches reading in depth and attentive in depth and attentiveness to the qualities of a text, to its structure and latent meanings, deepens understanding of the world, illuminates our interactions in daily life. Such developed powers of our linguistic capacity can help counter those codes and systems and protocols that increasingly regiment our world and operate to atomize us and impose uniformity and anonymity. Indeed, education, of which creative writing is only a strand, gives its participants materials to think with, ways of reading, thinking, and speaking. It helps fashion the country of words where we travel and dwell, in the words of a famous poem by Mahmoud Darwish. Without such grounding, business studies and other technical training become catechisms for robots. The election is coming, and concerning the fate of higher education, the major parties have largely stuck to silence. The Labour Party is under attack for saying it might lower fees to £6,000 a year, but it has not clarified these plans. And I think it would be tinkering. I mean, it's a good thing to lower the fees, but it would be just tinkering with the problem. The Greens have the right ideas, but they can't do much. We need to make higher education, its ethics, its funding, its direction a decisive issue. We must ask the candidates to own up to their plans and make our views felt about them. The new managerialist, brutal philistinism is spreading. And even as it says it is pursuing means to keep universities alive and well and inclusive, it is wrecking the ideals of intellectual emancipation through learning. A proposed, a supposed life support system has placed the patient in jeopardy. If universities continue going the way of the banks, the financial world, the corporations, then a fine system of public stewardship evolved over the decades to educate citizens for their good and the good of the society, would have been perverted and disfigured and trashed. This government, when it wanted to prevent prisoners from reading, did not realise that the problem is many of them can't read and have never had books in the first place, and their lives might not have taken the course they have done, they have, they have if they had been educated. If they'd had the luck to be in one of Philip Pullman's school plays, for example, and gone on to study. I would hazard 
that of the small proportion of convicted criminals who hold a degree from a university, the larger number would not have taken a humanities subject, but some variety of business studies. <laughs> after, protest, after protests, Chris Grayling, who is called the Minister for Justice, backed down over the books. This pre-election moment is a good one to speak out. We academics have dug ourselves into the nuclear waste tip of the REF, and we can try and green it over and move to another place and struggle to flourish there a little less self-destructively. Universities are charities, and the pay scales should correspond. Yet in charities, salaries of 110,000 are criticised as too high. A university should not receive more than X proportion of its research funding from companies or individuals for whom it is working directly. An X proportion of the research should be entirely free of all economic and intellectual strings. The humanities and the pure sciences would then benefit. I'd also like to see a differential agreed, no greater than, ideally, seven to one, or some such figure between the highest paid and the lowest paid in a university institution. At present, the ratio is more like 14 to one, UCL student protesters calculate that the VC is paid a cleaner's annual wage every 19 days. After climbing the mountain of purgatory, Dante the Pilgrim reaches the earthly paradise. There he finds two rivers. One is called Lethe and brings forgetting of his past sins. And that's a mercy for him, though the principle in relation to history has been rightly challenged. The other river was Dante's invention, and it is beautiful. It is called Eunoi, which literally means good mind. At the end, the poet drinks and tells us La Dolce Bear, the sweet draught, defeats all his powers of expression, that he could never have enough of La Santissima Onda, the most sacred waters. I choose to understand this elixir, Eunoe, as good, active knowledge, not only retrospective memory, the kind of knowledge that education passes on and cultivates, that grounds further access to learning, develops the ability to do something well, to think clearly and freely. Doing something well also requires attentiveness and the attention of others who are helping you, teaching you. Above all, Eunoe, good knowledge, needs hope, optimism of the will. It flows at the heart of education and will add to the sum of pleasure and mutual illumination in the world. Pleasure in the most ethical sense, not a quick discharge or thrill. The wild ass's skin, la peau de chagrin, a philosophical tale by Balzac, takes a widespread fairy tale motif about excess and greed and overreaching. The protagonist, Valentin, a young man on the make, comes upon an enchanted donkey's hide inscribed with magical ciphers, which turns out to have the power to grant its owner every wish. But every time it does so, it shrinks, and at the same time it cuts shorter the number of days remaining to Valentin. Valentin exults in the riches the skin procures for him, and he loses sight of his real desires, his beloved Pauline. I don't have to spell out to you why this fits in my mind with what the business model for universities is bringing about. At the lurid and hallucinatory close of the story, the hero on his deathbed has a vision of Pauline, his lost love, and the skin has shrunk to a scrap in her hand. Thank you. Questions now through the microphones on either side of the auditorium. So you put up your hand if you want to ask a question, and I'll pick people out. Anybody wish to ask a question here? Just three rows up. 
Please keep your hand raised until you get the microphone. Please speak into the microphone. Thank you for a truly inspiring lecture, Marina. Um, one, absolutely wonderful. So inspired that I put my hand up right away. <laughs> I, what, what, I, what I feel I want to ask you for is an action plan that could be put to the political parties before the election. You started it in, in, uh, at the end of what you said, or near the end of what you said. Um, and I think it's, it's, I mean, one almost wants to start a campaign immediately and say, come on, let's do it, let's go. Um, people have been murmuring about this for a while, and um, we, need it to, we need it to happen. Um, well, I, I'm sort of not capable of doing it. I mean, I've only, this only happened to me by chance, you know, and so I, I have not, but um, there, there has been a huge amount of literature. I mean, I probably try to look at, you know, I don't know, 20 books, um, there really have been marvellous analyses and marvellous people working. So basically, we all just need to become a little bit more informed so that we can pressure and ask the questions. Um, the, you know, the, it's a very, I mean, it's a very, very diverse, very, I mean, I couldn't give you a sense of that at all. I mean, it's hugely diverse. There are these enormous institutions like Oxford, and, and then there is, you know, smaller institutions or... And, um, and there are, I'm afraid, a lot of theories and plans going around. Um, so it's, you know, it's very, very complicated. I think that, I mean, well, let me just say that I think there are two major dangers. One is that t research and teaching are split, that research has become a privileged upper elite, and then and teaching is done by a sort of lower. There is, there is in a sense, a little bit of that's already happened to some extent, but it's not official. So that is one of the things that is suggested. There is a lot of talk about amalgamating institutions, so, you know, making larger ones. That's sort of, you know, the, the, the shadow of what happened to the NHS hangs over all this. You see, it's like closing cottage hospitals. You make huge, baggy, then you put some huge digital system in, paying huge amounts of money to some corporation that can't even deliver it. And, you know, that's so, and you, and you get rid of the, because, all these places have their own traditions and histories. One of the points that I didn't explore at all, um, and that is that some of the, this sort of managerial um, arrogance also wipes out the history of the place. So there's no sense of it. So in one, one of the people I, I quoted, one of the things she said about it is that they've cleared out so many people that, we, that the actual history of a very historic institution she's in um, you know, the people don't have any memory of how things were done. That's deliberate. That's a kind of... Um, so um, my sense is that we haven't achieved enough salience in the discussion. And to, Even to just today on the radio, I heard someone saying this is not going to be an election issue because nobody cares. It's not quite possible that with 40% students in the universities paying £9,000 a year, not all of them, but I mean, some of them... Um, I don't know the foreign figures. There's some paying more, but there, there is a constituency of people who, you know, who, in whose interests this this that this issue should be debated, um, and it just seems to me that, well, that so many, so much parts of it, so much of it needs reforming, as you heard. Um, there, are, there is the campaign for the defence of British universities. The Times Higher is a very, very strong and eloquent um, journal of record and analysis. And they are combining with the Open University on a big debate on March the, 20, on March the 2nd at Church House. So there, there, there are people trying to move it. 
it, you, we won't get an immediate solution. For example, the ref, there's a hundred different ways that people think that should be replaced, but it's very, very difficult. I mean, one of the, I mean, I'm afraid, I'm, I feel, um, America doesn't have a ref. They have extraordinarily good quality research. Uh, researchers are all ast- assessed and vetted all the time. I mean, any, by other things, by, by peer review, by, by grant applications, by, I mean, why there has to be a whole other tier on top of that, I don't understand. And the other, one thing I didn't mention about the REF, which is, is very, very much to my heart, and really cut me to my heart, is that because they pick the people who will be put in the REF and they leave out others, causes this unbelievable tension and misery in departments. Uh, yes, I was interested in what you said about the defence of the Warburg um, Institute, and uh, you described it as a um, magnificent example of coherent resistance. And actually, I think, um, I mean, I'm speaking as a former student and observer rather than someone in the field, you know, in, in any form in academia. But I think a lot of the resistance that um, there is to these sorts of market reforms will, in fact, be incoherent and, you know, and has been in the past. And sometimes incoherent resistance has got, you know, more attention and um, more... And sort of, you know, sometimes when the messages are sort of criticised by others within the academy for being inarticulate, they have in fact been more powerful messages and they've got the the voices heard. And I I was wondering if you thought that sometimes um, within this system, there's um, the... uh, the sort of um, fussiness that you get that is a natural and sort of very understandable and often desirable part, part of academia can sometimes hinder um, the ability of um, uh, the sector to uh, different parts of the sector to show solidarity with one another and to support um, resistance, however incoherent it, it may be. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's a rather hopeful interpretation and a very good one and a good answer to Lisa, actually. In the sense that, yes, I think the, the more the plurality of yes, academics could can believe in the plurality and dissension of their own community because that is actually part of what we we believe in as intellectual freedom that we don't all have to be monolithic and all pull together and all agree, which is why I try to give a broader picture of who we might think of as sort of the defining intellectuals of our time. But um, and um, um, so I think you're, that's a very good point. I, I'm not quite sure why it's... I mean, I, I, I think it's just sort of, in a way, brazen... You know, they just brazenly tough it out when they, the, the, the authorities, they just don't listen. And they somehow frighten people because of that. I mean, I know that, in my experience, very articulate petitions were, at every stage of every kind of thing that's happening, were, you know, eloquently produced, and they were just brushed aside. Yeah, I'd like to make a comment on Marina's wonderful talk and ask her to respond to it, which is that everything that she's talked about that's being urged upon the universities by successive governments is being done in the name of the productivity and efficiency of private business and the private sector. I think that's testimony to the abject deference of the British class politique since Mrs. Thatcher's time to business. But there's a kind of abstract quality to this, that the private sector and the business remains very abstract. And 
were justified in asking, well, what business exactly do we have to emulate? And, and the UK economy is overwhelmingly dominated by financial services right here in London. It's what stops us from being somewhere between Italy and Spain in the European rankings. And once you look at the actual private sector, it's absolutely up to its ears in malfeasance and corruption. <laughs> I mean, only last week, the US Department of Justice said it was moving towards a criminal indictment of the Royal Bank of Scotland and Barclays for the manipulation of the foreign exchange market. So it seems to me that when we're told to emulate the private sector, we should ask, <laughs> what private sector? And don't they have something to learn from us? Yes. Well, that was Simon Head, who was one of the people who has been writing incredibly trenchantly and knows far, far more than me about um, the situation. And actually, beyond universities, the whole sort of um, corporate, um, corporate, um, d uh, digitized corporate tyranny. But I do have the figures, which I didn't read out, which are very interesting about the um, investment of business in um, research in this country. Um, because um, British industry, this, this vaunted private sector, actually invests very much less than one would expect. It was 1.23% of GNP, of, um, yes, of GNP, 1.23% of GNP in 2013. In Finland, a country which is 10 times smaller than us, they, the bear business invested twice as much, 2.6% of GNP, in research and innovation. So that shows that the private sector is not only um, inefficient, but is also completely you know, skinflints. I mean, they don't actually do any, they don't do any investment. Um, and, but I didn't read it out because I actually hadn't looked into um, whether in Finland... This is all uh, bound by gagging orders and therefore not research undertaken in the public interest. So I just didn't read it out because I didn't want to seem to be supporting that if that was the case. Because it seems to me that it's absolutely essential that a majority part of the university research is not tied to financial interests of the private sector. I think it's absolutely, really, really important. I mean, it's important for the, for not only for you know, questions of justice or profit, it's, it's important for the sum of knowledge growing in the world. I'm um, very interested in the way that in um, a lot of contemporary universities, there's very little so-called recreational space. Mm. The spaces where students would traditionally get together and discuss... Um, the wider aspects of their education, the aspects that, in a way, would take them away from the particular style of individualised mm. education that's been encouraged, which is all about competition, grade chasing, mm. a, a, a more of an intellectual tinderbox potential. Yes. And it seems to me that there is something very worrying in the way in which educational establishments now say, well, we haven't got the money to pay for a room for the, the, the students to just get together and have a coffee. Mm. We need those rooms for the more students that are coming in. We have to use them for their education without realising the crucial nature of those spaces and those spaces in which 
students may, in fact, have the possibility of protesting against getting together to protest against some of these issues that are coming up. Yes, well, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. I mean, one of the, um, the analysis of the current rise in student numbers it hasn't really been fully um, done. Though there was an excellent report in the Times Higher. But um, the, um, it, there, one of the reasons for the rise is that a lot of B-Tech um, uh, uh, um, qualification holders have been admitted. And that's, that reflects a undiscussed turn towards technical skills in the universities. I'm not against technical skills. It's just what is, it's, what is it at the cost of? And, and I think you're right. That's, that The idea that these are spaces where your spirit is enlarged beyond the actual qualification you're going to get, that you're having debates and discussions. You're having, I've heard this phrase, a fair seed time. You know, you're enjoying this fair seed time, which, of course, is a, um, a great privilege and, a great, in a sense, a luxury. But, but it's one that, you know... We want to still one of the most vigorous countries in the world financially. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we are. But anyway, um, you know, we should we should give that. We should give that. Cross pollination. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Marina, thank you very much for a beautifully balanced lecture, <laughs> um, and thank you for starting with silence. And um, I was thinking when you mentioned the question of uh, history and character of the various institutions. And then the first question leads us about, the first point about, have action on this, let's do something. Um, There is a problem with how to find the right balance in how we feel as academics and what we say inside the institutions and outside. And I know that, for instance, there are lots of characters, there are lots of typical things that we are induced to be doing because of the situation, and one of them is that of complaining. So beautiful, the fact that you balanced the complaint with facts and with the joys of of being um, an academic as well and the advantages of it. So I just wonder what you think about, you know, if you were to think about an action that wasn't an action just in itself and that ended where it began or almost very soon... Um, what about this sense of keeping the action going and the balance, keeping the balance between complaining, you know, the, the typical academic who complains all the time mm. and things are not going well, but rather complaining in, a, in the right way rather than, I know that mm. there, is a, there was a concern in you about you didn't want this to be very personal, um, but to be able to resonate with everybody. Mm. So how does one deal with that? Well, I think that I think it would be a good idea to have a change.org um, campaign. Actually, I think the students are key um, to this. And in fact, another point that I could have made is that there should be more student representation um, in the discussion. And um, yes, I think that I mean, we should, in a way, it should come from all kinds of different directions, and in any way that people wish to say it. Um, it is possibly true that there's, no, there's not quite such a need to be frightened. I mean, the, the universities, I spent a lot of money on litigation, as I quoted to you. Um, but could they sort of take up, you know, how many... And there have been some very notorious cases recently which they've lost, and Thomas Doherty at Warwick. So, you know, 
Will, will they sort of plunge in to start, if, if people really start building a head of steam and saying what they want, you know, they can't start litigating against all their employees. <laughs> so I, I sort of feel more, more vociferous, more vociferous, and I think your point was very good about not worrying about the unity of voices. Doesn't seem to be any more questions. So, Marina, I'd just like to thank you for a fantastic lecture. <laughs>